Welcome to season two of Vital Science, the podcast where you'll hear real life stories of the human experience of science as told by researchers, patients, advocates, and people from the Charles River community. This season, we're talking to leading scientists who will share insight into hot topics that are top of mind for our listeners. First up, what everyone's talking about these days, vaccines. We hope you'll tune in for all four episodes as we first cover vaccine history and then the immune mechanisms these drugs try to manipulate. Later in the series, our guests will discuss alternatives to vaccine therapy and how organizations are working with the FDA to accelerate development in time for an effective COVID solution. For our first episode, Vital Science host Chris Garcia sat down with one of Charles River's principal scientific advisors, Dr. Sarah Gould, to discuss infectious disease, the history of vaccination, and the challenges of developing this class of therapies. Sarah, welcome to Vital Science. Uh, we'd love to hear more about you, your background, how you how you got here. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's been a bit of a long journey. Um, I started my uh, work life as a, as a nurse um, way back, um, then went off into research, uh, did a PhD, and eventually came working for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, for which I've been working for 25 years, and I spent 15 years working in vaccine development. Can you start with a brief history of infectious disease and, and the human timeline? Well, I think infectious diseases go back a long way, actually, probably in, since time in beginning. Um, and really, we can start from when things were recorded. We know that infectious diseases have been around since the year 1000 in China and then coming up through the centuries um, with very m many familiar names um, that you'll know today, like leprosy. Uh, people have heard of the plague. There was the smallpox, um, measles. I mean, these are going back in terms of um, smallpox, 1492, where you had uh, Christopher Columbus, who took that over to the US. Then you're coming up through time and history into the 1500s. Uh, we had, again, some outbreaks of smallpox, particularly in India, or whooping cough. Then there's been typhoid. So you can see, you get the general gist. More modern day, we've seen in the 1800s flu. So people will have heard of uh, the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, before that was the 1889 Russian flu. Um, there was also uh, the Asian flu. Um, and then we started to have a couple of new diseases. Um, in 1981 was HIV. In 2003 was SARS. So you can see, you know, we've always been around with infectious diseases. When did the first vaccine come along? So the first vaccine, it's difficult how to just say what was the first vaccine, because I think there were things going on in China, et cetera, which gives some indication that people were dabbling around with a sort of type of vaccination. But really, I think that the main one was really um, Edward Jenner, who was famous um, for the smallpox vaccine. Um, he noticed that milkmaids were, who contracted cowpox from cow's udders were protected from smallpox. Uh, he was tra trained as a, a doctor um, and eventually in 1796 he took a cowpox blister and made a little scratch on the skin of a young eight-year-old boy called James Phipp and that really was the beginning of vaccines. So Sarah, can we start with 
a, a basic description of how do vaccines work and, and do they work against both viruses and bacteria? Yeah, sure. So we, um, the S vaccines work against bacteria and viruses. So we have examples of both. So just to give you an example of, of some that you will be very well aware of, um, such as diphtheria or meningococcal bacteria. Um, for viruses, there's obviously smallpox, but there's others like rabies or influenza. So yes, we have an array for both types of uh, infectious diseases. Um, and basically, how do they work? Well, the, the key way they work is that they trigger an antibody response. I won't go into details because it gets immunology gets a bit more complicated than that, but that's the basics of how they work. Understood. And we'll dive deeper into the immune response in our next episode. But for now, let's talk a little bit more about creating present-day vaccines. Obviously, there are more rules that dictate how they are developed. What can you tell us about that? So, yeah, so that's a very good question in terms of rules and regulations. Um, obviously, uh, when Edward Jenner was testing on a small boy, there were no rules and regulations. And as we've developed uh, medicine and vaccines, so rules and regulations have, have come in and for very good reasons. Um, so that today we have a number of guidelines, regulatory guidelines that have been placed that have been developed throughout the 20th century. Um, some of them may be only recently, the 1990s, as we've learned and as we've developed more vaccines. Who knows when scientific curiosity around infectious disease began, but we at least know that Edward Jenner developed a theory of protective therapy as early as the 1700s. Eight-year-old James Phipps survived the first dose of what became the smallpox vaccine, but as the practice of inoculation or variolation advanced, so did the documentation of best practices and resulting guidelines for protecting patient populations. At present, regulatory authorities around the world continue to collaborate on defining the requirements for producing safe vaccines. Before being administered to healthy patients, vaccines must demonstrate a determined level of efficacy and safety before they can advance to clinical trials. Collectively, the rules can make vaccine development more challenging, especially in a climate where time is of the essence. In discussing the different types of vaccines, Chris and Sarah further illustrate the complexity of development. Sarah, what do we need to know about the differences in these types of vaccines? Can you go over those with us? Yes, I can try to do that. Um, as you say, different types of vaccines, meaning how they're made, really. Um, so some can be what they call um, attenuated or inactivated, like the flu virus. So they get the virus and they just sort of kill it and chop it up. Um, or others now, I mean, what we're seeing now today is um, we're, we're much cleverer. So we can just isolate what we call the antigen that will specifically trigger off that antibody, make it very specific. So we can isolate that and just use that sort of protein piece. So we don't have to have the whole of the virus or the bacteria. And now, of course, some of the modern, well, we're seeing with COVID, the what's called the mRNA vaccines. So again, another type of technology where, in fact, that the body is now going to make the protein and they inject the mRNA and then the, the body will make the protein for which then the antibodies will be raised against and target the, uh, the virus. And with, with the different types of vaccines, why aren't all vaccines 100% effective? 
that's a very difficult question to ask because there's lots of um, components to what makes a vaccine effective. And so, first of all, you you'll never have a hundred percent effectiveness, and you'll never have a hundred percent safety uh, just in anything. And then it's a case of um, effectiveness being: are we talking at the community level? Are we talking at the individual level? Um, so it can be related to the population, so the age, the person who's receiving it, that can imp imp impact. It can relate to when you get exposed to that vaccination. Um, it can relate to the genetic makeup of somebody. Um, there's also herd protection or immunity that comes into it. So there's a number of factors that play a part in the effectiveness of a vaccine. It's just not one variable. So can we go over what are the current testing methods for that initial vaccine development? So the initial testing methods were really in terms of we can divide those into what's called efficacy. Does the vaccine work? Obviously, we're very interested in safety. So safety is very important. Um, those are the key key tests that uh, we do. Um, you start off obviously preclinically, either in a test tube, Maybe then we do have to use uh, animals um, and then we're ready to go into humans. Having passed, you know, a number of key checks and balances to ensure the safety of, of humans. And that's the most important criteria before you can go into humans is safety. And you mentioned uh you mentioned COVID. Right now we're in, in phase three clinical trials, which they call the efficacy trials. Uh, what does that actually entail? Yes, well, they're looking at eff efficacy. They'll be looking at safety and the immunogenicity. Um, they'll have various criteria that they'll be looking at, but they'll definitely be looking at that uh, antibody response um, in, in the first instance. They'll also be looking at um, the safety, so looking for adverse events. So I, we've just seen today that uh, the phase three clinical trial has currently been put on pause because it's, there's been a, what's called a reported adverse event. Whether that's related to the vaccine or not, we don't know at this point, but there's been a... There's, so again, it's looking at efficacy and safety. And, and how successful does a vaccine have to be in one of these studies for it to be considered effective? What you're looking for in general, and I think uh, that's it's sort of a movable number, but around 50%, certainly for COVID, is the number that's being considered as appropriate to be effective. And is there a baseline for uh, how the timeline over how long a vaccine should be effective for? Well, obviously, the longer the better. <laughs> Um, and one, we can hope that that will be the case. Um, and a lot of vaccines are going to be, you know, effective for life. But that isn't always the case. Um, and again, it depends on the type of immune response you get from a vaccine, you know, and all sorts of other factors that can implicate as to how effective a vaccine can be. And, and there are some vaccines um, that require boosters. Why is that? 
Well, again, that can be, again, due to diminishing immune response, um, sometimes concerns in the in the community as well. Uh, maybe, again, depends on the type of disease, whether there's a population com coming in or there might be people that are unvaccinated. So there can be various reasons as to why you give a booster. But but in general, what what's trying to be done by the vaccine is to you know, keep disease at bay or those selected diseases that we have vaccines for at bay. And then it's that balance um, you know, to try and vaccinate as many people as possible. But there are some other diseases like smallpox and polio where the vaccine, you could say, almost eradicated that disease. Well, smallpox, yes. And smallpox has been eradicated likely because um, it's a human disease. Polio, we have eradicated. Now, again, there is more than just one subtype of polio. So we've eradicated or eliminated, I'd say, nearly polio two, but polio one and three are still, are still around in certain areas. So a lot of that sounds like it depends on if there's an animal host where it can, it can survive in nature and then reinfect. That yeah, that certainly plays a role in eradication. So if you have any sort of reservoirs of a, of a particular virus or bacteria, then it's very hard to completely eradicate. But as you can see, we've, we've managed it with smallpox, but some others are going to be very difficult to eradicate totally. But that doesn't mean we can't sort of eliminate them or certainly reduce. And that's what we've been very effective at. In, so that there's you know a number of diseases that, that, that we have reduced um, over time, such as uh, measles, um, tetanus, um, mumps, rubella, that, you know, we are reducing them and, and eliminating them. Sarah, let's talk more about the, the flu vaccine. And, and can you explain to us why that is uh, a vaccine that we have to get each and every year? Yeah, sure. The, the flu, the flus are, are quite complicated in some ways, but it, basically, it's changing all the time. It can change its genetic uh, structure, um, and there are four key sort of influenza viruses A, B, C, and D. Um, and particularly, influenza A is the one that changes the most. Um, you'll have heard of the H and the N. Um, this is the, its antigen that it sort of changes. So you'll have heard H1N1 or H3N1. And that's, again, because the, 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 the virus can change genetically. Um, and therefore, we're not necessarily immune to each virus plus often the immune, our immune response maybe doesn't isn't as strong so again there's that that reason for maybe needing yearly vaccination etc that brings us back to the concept of herd immunity which is all over the news these days yeah herd immunity is quite quite important um, how to describe it it's it's basically to say that you're you're seeing a decline in the disease and it's actually that decline is greater than the number of people that are actually immunized. So that immuni by immunizing people is actually protecting the people that aren't immunized. But you need to have a certain number for that to, to happen. And that's what they mean um, by herd protection or herd immunity. There's not a precise number. Uh, again, it's going to depend on the disease. I have I have one sort of kind of figure that shows the coverage was, and it was a, a HIB, what was called a HIB vaccine, that showed um, that coverage was less than 70% in Gambia and, and was sufficient enough to eliminate HIB disease. It depends on a lot of the coverage rate and the, um, the, you know, the reproduction number, so it gets a bit complicated. 
So at the moment, we're too early with COVID to have that. You'd have to have had a lot more people exposed to the, the virus to have reached herd immunity. So we know there are proponents of herd immunity who believe in the body's natural defenses over the power of a vaccine to prevent infection. Yet, as we discussed earlier, vaccines have been proven effective for decades. The question is, how do we know vaccines are truly safe? And Sarah, how do we guarantee the safety of vaccines? So I think we have to say, well, safety is never guaranteed in anything. But overall, if we really look at vaccines um, and all the data that we have on the safety of vaccines, they, they are very safe. That doesn't mean to say that they don't come without some side effects. Of course, there are some side effects, um, some mainly to do with the, related to the immune response often very limited, local reactions. You know, I think many people who've had a BCG or for some of them as old as me, who've had smallpox, you've probably got a little scar on your arm. Um, and that was from the, you know, a local reaction at the site of injection. So you can have that, uh, you get redness, bit of swelling. Uh, some people suffer a little bit more, maybe running nose, headache, fever is sometimes, again, typical signs of the, you've stimulated the immune response, which actually you want to do. Now, there can be some cases where you see allergic type reactions um, or with there's a, a syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome, but it is so not very many. I mean, one case per million of Guillain-Barre has been noted. Um, so in terms of if you look at the sort of risk benefit overall, there's a lot of benefit and, and limited risk. Um, one of the challenges I think, though, that we do have, and particularly in affluent society, is that our risk perception changes and um, basically we become more risk averse as you become more affluent. Um, and human beings aren't very good at uh, risk assessment and risk perception. So that can be challenging as how to peop how people view the risks of vaccines. Um, you know, just to give you an example, what's safer, you know, in terms of a plane crashing or a car crash? Well, sometimes because of the sort of the numbers that would be killed from a plane crash, you, you, that's considered worse than a car crash. But actually, millions of people are killed in a year compared with, you know, say, 2019, you had about 287 fatalities of an airplane crash. But our human brain is challenged at how to look at that risk and how it perceives risks. Sarah, thanks for bringing your expertise and talking with us today and sharing with our listeners about the history of vaccines and the current development for vaccines now. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the questions. I hope the audience found it interesting. Um, certainly it was an interesting experience for me. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vital Science. Join us next month for the second episode in our four-part vaccine series, Immune Mechanisms, where we will take a further look into the human body's natural protection and how it affects vaccine development. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience@crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at seariver.com slash vital science podcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, 
focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.